morning, everyone. Hey, I'm so glad that you are joining us. We are continuing on in our series called Mirror Images. We're going back to some of the first pages in the God's Word to get a biblical perspective on topics like the sanctity of human life and sexuality. And these are, I think, really relevant topics for today. Also, some topics that are pretty controversial. And this morning, we are going to get into a conversation about God's design for sex. And in case you had no idea what you were getting yourself into this morning, if you brought some kids with you, I just want you to know we have an awesome kids ministry. And if you feel like this conversation is not going to be age appropriate for them, don't feel awkward about getting up in the service and taking your kids over there. Uh, but I'm going to do the best that I can to just talk about what God's word says and keep it PG-13. So, like I said before, uh, this is kind of a controversial topic that we're going to be getting into. And at the end of this message, you might have some comments that you want to send my way, maybe some criticisms. And so, if you want to send those my way, you can always go ahead and email me at kurtg at bwater.org. Uh, <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. All right. But for real though, I want to start things off with some questions. And I want, to, want you to think about your personal answer to these questions, but don't say anything out loud, all right? So the first question is, do we want gay and lesbian people coming to our church? Do we want them showing up on a Sunday morning, singing music with us and listening to a message, maybe dropping kids off at kids' ministry. Now, what about people who are living in adultery? Do we want them coming to our church? Or people who are addicted to pornography, do we want them coming to our church? Do we want people who are living in sexual sin coming to our church? And as I walk through each of those questions, maybe you answered all of those questions the same, or maybe you had a different answer for a different question. And I'm not just going to give you my opinion on answering those questions. I think what matters more than my opinion is what Jesus says. And so I want to take a look at some things that Jesus said that might relate to those questions that I just asked. So when Jesus was being confronted by religious leaders, who thought that they had their life all together. These religious leaders were confronting Jesus because he was spending time with sinners, people who are known to be living a lifestyle that's not pleasing to God. And so this is what Jesus says in Luke 5.31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I think there's so much packed into this verse and I want to kind of unpack that by giving you three scenarios, all right? So just imagine with me that you and your family get into a car, and you're driving through town, and it's a nice sunny day, everything's fine. Then boom, this other car comes speeding through an intersection, hits the side of your car, and both vehicles spin off to the side in a clump of metal. Now thankfully, you and your family are still alive, and you're able to crawl out of the wreckage of the vehicle, and you just have some serious bruises and some broken bones. And an ambulance shows up 
and a paramedic jumps out to see you and your family climb out of your car and also to see the driver of the other vehicle climb out of his car. And the other driver gets out of his car and he like stretches out his back, brushes some dust off of his arms. But other than that, he looks just fine. And that paramedic sees you and your injuries and rushes right over to the man who's perfectly fine. And I was like, wow, you look really good for just getting in a car wreck. Hey man, can I get you a cup of coffee or something? Like, I see your car's a wreck. You want me to give you a ride in my ambulance? And all the while, ignoring you and your family who's hurting and injured. And what Jesus is saying here is that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus didn't come to this earth for people who had their lives all together. The truth is, there's nobody who has their life all together. There's just, there's just people who think they do. Jesus is saying that his purpose was to come to earth for sinners, people who are lost and broken. We are all lost and broken people. Here's another scenario. So this time you get out of your car, your arm's broken. The paramedic runs up to you and takes a look at your broken arm. He says, wow, dude, that is a really bad broken arm you've got right there. All right, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go home, set the bone, try to heal yourself. And once things are looking better, then come see me at the hospital. Now, some of you laughed at that because that's pretty ridiculous, right? But the sad thing is a lot of people think that Jesus is like that paramedic. Like Jesus would say, I see you're, you're lost and broken. Go clean up your life first. Get your act together and then come see me. But the message of Jesus is come as you are with your sin and your brokenness. Now let me give you the last scenario here that I think fits with what Jesus is saying. So this time, the paramedic's checking out your arm and says to you, hey, I just need you to know, I think you are amazing just the way that you are. Broken arm or no broken arm. In fact, that broken arm is what makes you who you are. And I don't want you to feel like you have to change. Honestly, it's kind of painful to reset the bone and put that thing in a cast. And so you can just stay the way that you are. Now, it's pretty easy to see in an example like this that the paramedic's not helping you. Sure, maybe sparing you some short-term pain, but that's not the real lasting help that you need. And when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to be with sinners, people who are lost and broken and say, hey guys, I love you for how you are. I don't wanna change anything. Just continue on the path that you're on. This verse says, that Jesus came and he called sinners to repentance, to have a change of mind about their sin, to realize that it's wrong, that leads to a change of actions. And so the message of Jesus is come as you are with all of your sin, with all of your brokenness, but don't stay the way that you are. Experience the life change that Jesus offers. And so going back to the questions that we started with this morning, do we want people who are living in sexual sin coming to our church? I think if we're following the example of Jesus, I think the answer is yes. 
that the church of all places should be a place for people who are hurting and broken and a way for them to connect with Jesus, the one who can heal them and change their lives. There's this pastor named Tim Keller who passed away just a few weeks ago, but he's lived an incredible life um, and made a big impact through his ministry. And something that he said is that our churches should look a lot more like a waiting room in a hospital than a waiting room for a job interview. Because if you're in a waiting room for a job interview, you're putting your best foot forward. You're trying to do the best that you can to look as competent and as impressive as you can. But in a hospital waiting room, you're not trying to cover up your weakness. And you know that everybody else in that hospital waiting room is hurting and broken. And so I think that our church needs to be a safe place for people who are hurting and broken so that they can experience the life change that Jesus offers. And just keep, let's keep that in mind as we get into this morning's conversation about God's design for sex. We're going to be talking about what is outside of God's design for sex, what is sinful. And before you think, man, I wish I invited my neighbor to church, or I know just who needs to hear this message, my challenge for all of us this morning is to just be open to what God could be doing in our own hearts, open to God pointing out the things in our lives that we need to work on. Because let's face it, it is so much easier to identify the sin in other people's lives than it is to identify the sin in our own lives. And this morning, we're gonna be talking about a few different aspects of sexual sin. And I think that Satan would love it if you walked out of this church just knowing what the Bible has to say about somebody else's sin. But I think what God wants is for you to walk away this morning knowing what God has to say about what's in your own heart. So let's just have open hearts this morning as we get into God's word. We have a lot of content to cover, so we're just going to jump into the first point, and that is sex is a gift from God with parameters determined by the designer. So we're going to go to the first few pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 27 and talk about what marriage looked like before sin and brokenness entered the world. So in verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God takes the man and the woman, unites them in marriage, and basically gives them this command, have sex and rule the world. Now, whoever said that God is against having fun? But what we see is that this blessing that God gives is upon the union of the man and the woman. And I think the big question in today's culture is, does God only bless the union of a man and a woman? Does God bless a marriage between a man and a man? Or what about a woman with a woman? And 
I don't think it's so cut and dry just to say, well, the first example we have in the Bible is a man and a woman, and so that settles it. I wish it was that cut and dry, but I don't think that does justice to what God's word says. And so we're going to dig a little bit deeper into how God created male and female. So the interesting thing is that God didn't create the man and the woman at the same time. God created the first human, Adam, first. And at that point in history, everything that God made, he declared good, except there was one thing that was not good. So in Genesis 2.18, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is how the woman enters the picture here. God doesn't just make a clone of Adam or match him up with some kind of animal. Instead, he creates the woman, and, and this woman is a suitable helper for Adam. Now, a lot of this conversation will rise and fall on what this word suitable means. So if what makes the woman a suitable helper to Adam is just the fact that she is a human, then it's not much of a stretch to say that God blesses a marriage that is between a human and a human. And open that all up to a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman. And so it is so key, I think, for us to understand what it means for the woman to be a suitable helper for the man. The Hebrew word for suitable is the word kenigdo. And this is a compound word. So it's two words put together. The first part of that word, key, means like or as. And the second part of that word means opposite. So you put that together, the woman is like opposite the man. That makes a lot of sense, right? But <laughs> she is like the man in that she is human. She is opposite the man in that she is female. So God's blessing on marriage is not just the unity between a human and a human, but we see between a man and a woman. And when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he liked what he saw. He had a connection with Eve like he didn't have with any of the other animals. So the summary is he sang her a romantic song and then this verse shows up. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now the interesting thing here is that Adam and Eve were the first humans to ever live. They didn't have parents. I heard somebody say about a year ago that Adam and Eve probably didn't even have belly buttons. And that blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, well, if God created them as adults, I guess they don't need belly buttons. But uh, that's not biblical fact. That's just speculation. <laughs> and that's besides the point. The, the point here is that Adam and Eve, all right, they don't have parents. And so this verse is not just describing the relationship between Adam and Eve. It's not just describing their marriage. But this is giving instructions for all future marriages. This is God's way of saying marriage is between one man and one woman and sex is a gift that is to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. And so that brings us to our second point. Any sexual activity outside of God's parameters is sin. 
We'll go to the New Testament to look at this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 9. So this is Paul writing. And he says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So maybe we've read through the first uh, pages of the Bible about Adam and Eve's marriage, and you're like, I don't know. Is sex really limited to the boundaries of marriage? I think this verse clears it up for us. The word here for sexually immoral is the word pornos, from which we get the English word pornography. And this is talking about having sex with anybody that you're not married to. And in a modern day application, I think that this could also pertain to viewing pornography. Now, I don't think that God is condemning sex outside of marriage here because God hates love and he just wants to put an end to anybody having a good time. But let's just think for a minute if everybody were to follow God's design for marriage and for sex. Just imagine that if everybody followed God's design, there would be far less single parents raising kids on their own. If everybody followed God's design for sex within marriage, we would have far fewer marriages that are falling apart because of unfaithfulness. We wouldn't have people who are asking for somebody's body in the most intimate way, but not offering commitment in return. Now, honest confession here. If I was not a committed follower of Jesus, I wouldn't follow God's design for sex. And if I was not a Christian, I for sure would not follow God's design for sex. Because it's hard. And so often it feels like it doesn't really hurt anybody. Besides, I mean, this is love. But being at the point in my life where I'm in now, it's a lot easier for me to see that it is such a blessing to stay within God's boundaries for sex and marriage. There's a pastor at Bridgewater who says all the time that God's blessing is never found outside of God's boundaries. And so the greatest blessings, I believe, come from following God's design, even if it feels ridiculous, even if it's hard, it is so worth it. And then in this passage, Paul also says that it is wrong to practice homosexuality. And at this point in the conversation, I think it's important to make a distinction here and talk about, all right, God's instruction differentiates between action and attraction, this passage clearly condemns the practice of homosexuality. But I think a big question for today is what if somebody has same-sex attraction but doesn't act on it? Are they in sin just because of the desires that they have? And I think this is such an important question to ask 
But before we get to the answer to that question, let's first talk about where does same-sex attraction come from? And I'm going to speak in generalities here, but for the most part, there are two common explanations for where same-sex attraction comes from. People think that either it's a choice or God made them that way. And if you have never experienced same-sex attraction, it's more likely that you would believe that it's just a choice. That somebody could just flip the switch and stop believing or stop being attracted to the same sex. It's a choice. But if you do struggle with same-sex attraction, you'd probably say it's not a choice at all. You'd probably say that you didn't wake up that one morning thinking, I just want to be attracted to the same sex. And the logical or the thought process often is, if I didn't choose this, then God must have made me this way. And the logical conclusion that often follows is, well, if God made me this way, then it must be good. So those are the two most common explanations for this question of where did same-sex attraction come from. But I, th I think there's a third option. I don't think that these are the only two answers for this question. I tend to believe that same-sex attraction is a result of sin entering the world. So in the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve were given this one command not to eat from a tree. They ate from that tree, and when they did so, they brought sin and corruption into the world. And sin didn't just corrupt the things around them. Sin corrupted their very being. And they passed on this sin nature to every future generation. So when a baby is born, that baby isn't born perfect and then becomes a sinner as it grows older. But that baby is born with certain desires that are wrong, tendencies towards sin. Gabby and I are fully expecting that our baby is going to have tendencies towards disobedience and selfishness and pride because that's how all of us are. We are all born with desires that we shouldn't have, with, with tendencies towards sin. And just because we're born with a certain tendency, it doesn't mean that we should embrace that. Now, just like in our culture today, we wouldn't give people a free pass on stealing or murder just because they have a tendency towards those things. And I think the same applies for practicing homosexuality. Just because somebody has a tendency towards that doesn't mean that it's something that should be embraced. But So if that's where same-sex attraction comes from, I think we still need to answer the question, all right, but is it wrong to have those desires as long as you don't act on it? And instead of giving you my opinion, let's again go back to what the Bible says. In Hebrews, it talks about the example of Jesus. And it says in Hebrews 4, chapter 15, uh, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That high priest this verse is talking about is Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, 
But still, Jesus did not sin. So what we see from this verse is that sin and temptation are two different things. Temptation itself is not sin. I heard it said one time that you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop birds from making a nest in your hair. And none of us can ever just avoid temptation in our life. Like we can't isolate ourselves and get to a point where there's no temptation. But we can make a choice in whether or not we will give in to that temptation. And there's no temptation that has such a hold on our life or that it's too hard that we can't ever escape it. And that's what the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I think Satan wants us to believe that we are the only ones who are facing the struggles that we're going through. Satan wants you to feel as isolated as he possibly can. And nobody else knows what it's like that you're going through. Nobody else can relate. There's nobody who can really help you. But that's not what God says. God says that whatever temptations you face, that's the kind of temptation that other people face as well. That you are not alone if you face temptations towards homosexuality or adultery or pornography or anything like that. Those are all temptations that are common to a lot of people. But here's the good news. God is so faithful. God is faithful because he's not going to let you come up against a temptation that you cannot overcome. He always provides a way of escape. But here's the tricky thing. Sometimes we love our sin more than we love God. And even though there's a way of escape, we're not looking for it. We see the path that we're on. We see where that temptation has taken us. And we're like, all right, here we go. Or sometimes we want to break free from the hold that temptation has on our lives. But that way of escape that God offers us isn't always the easy path. Sometimes that way of escape is hard. I mean, that way of escape that God offers us, maybe that means for you reading the Bible on a regular basis. That's a time commitment. Or what about praying in that moment that you're tempted? That takes such intentionality. I mean, that's a practice to build up to, to think when you're tempted, this is a time to pray. Or to call somebody up when you're tempted for accountability. Like that takes some serious vulnerability to let somebody know where you're really at and what you're really going through. Or maybe you know you should get more connected with people in the church, get connected in a small group, invite people into your life to speak truth into your life. That's a commitment as well. And so it's not always easy to get out from under temptation but God is faithful and he gives us everything that we need to overcome temptation in our lives. Now, maybe at this point, you're hearing all of this and you're thinking to yourself, 
man, I'm just too far gone. Like you're thinking about some things in your past and you just really wish that you could hit the reset button, go back and undo some things. Or maybe right now you are caught in the grip of temptation in your life. And you're wondering if there's even hope. If you're, maybe you're wondering if God wants to have anything to do with you. And if that's where you're at this morning, this is what I want to share with you. God's grace is for all brokenness, including every form of sexual brokenness. I think there's some things in the church or some sins where it's like, I'm okay with confessing that. I'm okay with people knowing about that. And then there's some other things in your past or some things you're caught up in. And you're like, I don't want anybody to know about that. Or maybe God's forgiveness can cover all of these other things, but not that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're given some good news. Well, it starts out with some bad news here. So first, here's the bad news. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Basically means if you are a sinner, you're not going to heaven. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. I'm going to read that again. That's the good news. All these sinners will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But some of you, that's who you were. Those are the things that you did. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, for all of us, it doesn't matter what your sin is. Your sin puts a barrier between you and God. That's what keeps you from being qualified to go to heaven. But Jesus came to earth to make a way for us to have a relationship with God that starts in this life and goes on for all of eternity. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He took the wrath of God for sin upon himself so that we could be offered forgiveness so that if we just believe in Jesus and turn to him to be our forgiver, to be our savior and our leader, then God's forgiveness will cover any sins in our lives, whether that's sexual sin or anything else. That sin is washed away. That barrier that keeps us from being right with God is broken down. And through the work of God in our life, we are sanctified. We become more like Jesus. And so the good news is whatever it is in your life, whatever sins of your past you feel like are unforgivable, I just want you to know God can forgive your sins. And we're given a new identity. We're no longer defined by the things of our past or the sins that we're caught up in but we have this identity as a child of God. And so this morning, just want to wrap things up with the reminder that the message of Jesus is come as you are, but don't stay that way. And maybe that's helpful to think about the people in your life who you know are 
are living in sin and you want to reach them and you don't know how to interact with them, approach them, just know that, that God wants to have a relationship with them. And God wants to change them from the inside out. The biggest thing that they need is not just a change in their behavior, but they need the healing that Jesus offers, the change of being forgiven by God and having him work in their lives. And maybe this reminder is important for you because there's some things in your heart that you know don't line up with how God wants you to live. And God has accepted you, but he also has a plan for you to become more like Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to take steps towards becoming more like Jesus in this area of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us. Uh, there's nothing that we could do to remove the stain of our sins. But through Jesus, uh, we can be right in your sight. You give us forgiveness to cover up all the things that we've done wrong. God, I know that Satan wants everybody here this morning to just feel the full weight of just guilt and shame and brokenness. Satan wants people to feel like they can't turn to you. But God, I pray for everybody here in this room, and I ask that they would know the love and the compassion of Jesus, that they would not try to clean up their lives before coming to you, but that they would just come running and experience your embrace and experience the true and lasting change that you offer. I pray that none of us here would be like the religious leaders and just be experts in pointing out sin in other people's lives. But I ask that we would be experts in just knowing what's in our own hearts and bringing that before you. So God, please help us to just become more like Jesus and give us the strength to do that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.